There was once a wife who was getting dressed for church Sunday morning early. She was hurriedly to get, hurrying to get dressed. And uh, she noticed that her husband was still lying in bed, being very lazy that morning. And look, looked as if he didn't even want to get up. In fact, he said, I'm not going to church this morning, honey. You go. She said, what do you mean you're not going to church? Get up. He said, no, I'm not going to church this morning, and I have three reasons why I'm not going to church. Number one, the people at this church are cold and indifferent. Secondly, the people at this church, nobody likes me. And third, I just don't want to go. She said, well, I'll give you three reasons why I think you should go. Number one, the people are warm at this church. Secondly, there's a few people who like you. And number three, you're the pastor, so get up. Let's go. I often meet Christians who get all excited about God's will for their life, all excited about being used by the Lord. And that's probably second to coming to Jesus Christ, the idea that God could use my life to touch somebody else's life. If you've ever led somebody to Jesus Christ, and probably all of you have at least led one person, you know the thrill, the excitement, to have that person pray to receive Jesus Christ, knowing that that person just passed from death into life. There's nothing that exceeds that joy. And you walk away going, yeah, I was just used by God. Awesome. It's a high you can't come down off of. In fact, to me, it's a greater high to personally lead a person, to, another one, to Jesus Christ than giving an altar call and seeing many come or preaching a message. There's nothing like it. And I often hear Christians say, I just want to know what the will of God is. Whatever God's will is, I don't care what He wants me to do. If I could only know what it is, I'd do it. Those are great words, but they are not always true. When it gets right down to it, if many of us were honest, we would say, Lord, I want to do whatever you want me to do as long as it's not this or this or this. In fact, there are some who will even think, um, Lord, why don't you tell me what you want me to do first? And once you lay it out, then I'll tell you how uh, supple I am to your hand, how willing I am to obey. What are God's requirements? I better know them first before I just launch out and say, Go ahead, Lord, use me. Moses is very stubborn in this section of Scripture. And he doesn't want to really obey the will of God. But as we have seen last week and we'll see this week, God is persistent. He's not going to let Moses go. Moses is the guy who's laying in bed saying, No, nope, I'm just not going to go. And God's saying, get up, you're the deliverer. I'm going to send you an excuse after excuse after excuse, and yet God is so lovingly persistent, and he just sort of pushes Moses into the arena because God is determined to use him. I've often thanked the Lord that he has not been like previous bosses that I've had. And I can understand from an employer's perspective. You hire somebody to produce. If they don't produce, you evaluate them. And if they still don't produce after you've cautioned them, you let them go. You get somebody who wants to do it. Now, if I were God, that's what I would have done with Moses. I said, forget, forget this joker. There are plenty of people in Egypt who are slaves, Israelites, who would love to be used. I'll just get one of them and power them with my spirit. God isn't like that. God is willing to be patient to mold us into the kind of person he wants us to become. And God forbid that we would ever use the excuse, I'm not equipped, I just can't do it. <laughs> use somebody else. I mean, they're better equipped. They're better at speaking. But God wants to use you. Each and every one of you tonight, God has a purpose for. I'm always disappointed when people move laterally in the Christian life. Whether they go from just being a spectator in one church and then move to this church to become a spectator, or they move from this church as a spectator and go to another fellowship, 
to be another spectator in that fellowship. I'm always disappointed in that person. But when a person says, I'm leaving the fellowship because God has a work for me to do, all right. I'm going to take the ball and go for it. I'm going to find the will of God and go down 100%. That's awesome. Well, let's look at a couple of these excuses. Back in chapter 3, in verse 11, God calls Moses and Moses said, Lord, who am I? Sounds very, very humble. And it might have been at first, but it becomes an excuse. Who am I? And God's retort to him is, it doesn't matter who you are, I'll be with you. You've got my presence. The issue isn't who you are, the issue is who I am. And who I am, I'll be with you. So you got that covered. Then down in chapter 3, verse 13, second excuse, Moses says, okay, when I talk to the children of Israel, they're going to ask me what God's name is. What am I going to tell them? God says, tell them I am who I am. That's the one who sent you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh. But he's presupposing. They're going to ask questions I won't be able to answer. What do I tell them? His third excuse is now in chapter 4. He says, what if they don't believe me, Lord? God says, all right, what do you have in your hand? He says, I have a rod. He goes, toss it on the ground. As soon as it's tossed on the ground, it becomes a snake. Moses, the brave leader that he is, runs away from it. God says, touch its tail. As he touches its tail, it becomes a rod again in his hand. It can become a serpent or it could become a rod. Now, there's a lot of Moses in each of us. You have probably said or thought some of the same things that Moses has said, and so I pray that his life would encourage you this evening. Moses answered and said, Suppose they will not believe me or listen to me. Oh, we already read that. And then uh, verse 5, That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. In verse 6, furthermore, the Lord said to him, Put now your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. He said, Put your hand in your bosom again. And so he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom, and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Leprosy in those days, Hansen's disease as we uh, know it today, was incurable. There was no medicine that could be applied to such a disease. It was loathsome. It began by affecting uh, the nervous system. Pretty soon you could not feel things. Uh, and because you couldn't feel pain, um, you might have lacerated yourself and bleed to death. And uh, while you're bleeding, you wouldn't even know it. You wouldn't feel it. It wouldn't hurt. It was so loathsome. And what God is showing Moses that is the fact that even over diseases that are incurable, God has power. God is demonstrating to Moses, his servant, that he has power over anything. Then it will be that if they do not believe you or heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on dry land. Now, after a burning bush experience, most people would be convinced. If you were walking out in the desert and you saw a bush that was burning that knew your name and had a conversation with you, you know, you might catch yourself in the middle of it and go, wait a minute, I'm, I'm talking to a bush. But he knew that it was the Lord. And the Lord said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. After something like that, after seeing uh, your rod turn into a snake, after putting your hand in your bosom and it coming out white, leprous, and putting it back in, most people would be convinced. But Moses is a scaredy cat. And all of the problems are simply excuses to not do what God wants him to do. It's, well, Lord, what about this? God answered, well, what about this? What? And he's just coming up with things. He's a worrier. It's the what-ifs. A lot of times I find that people are stifled from being used by God because they think of all of the hypothetical situations that might happen to them. 
Well, if I give my life to Christ, he might tell me to become a missionary in Española or something. I don't know. I don't know about that. Or he might have me go to a third world country. Listen, wherever God sends you, God will put a burning desire, I believe, in your heart to do that. Even though it might be uncomfortable, I think God will put a desire in your heart to do his will. There will be a passion in your heart to serve him. A joy will accompany the call. An elderly man was once asked by somebody who was younger. They said, what worried you the most in life? The old man smiled and he said, the things that never happened. The things that never happened are the things that worried me the most. What happens if? If my worst fear comes true. Now, we're told that 90% of our worst fears never come true. Every now and then you'll find a person whose worst fear has come true. Next Sunday morning we'll read about Job. He said, that which I have feared has come upon me. The worst thing happened to him, but most of us sit and worry about all the hypothetical things that could happen that never happen. And that causes us to sort of shrink back from following the will of the Lord. Now Moses is afraid of what others might think. In verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses is afraid not only of his inability to perform, but the fact that the people might not see him as a leader. I was reading a statistic this last week. Actually, I've read it a couple times to uh, our pastor's school that we have during the week as we train up young men in the ministry. And most of the pastors that were polled by a recent study, most of them said that they felt very inadequate for the ministry. Inadequately trained, inadequate to stand up before people and be God's spokesman. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if I get asked a question that I can't answer? Then what will I tell them, Lord? One of our greatest hindrances in serving the Lord is the fear of men. We're afraid of what people might think about us. Probably that's one of the greatest hindrances, period. We're wondering, what do they think about me? What was that look about? What did they mean by that when they said that? We're afraid of what other people think. Do we match up to their expectations? That's why when God called Jeremiah... 17-year-old boy. He said, Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. Don't be afraid of the way they look at you. And it's true. Some people can give you pretty grumpy looks. Sometimes they don't mean to do it. They just have a grumpy face. And they'll sit and they'll give you a grumpy kind of a look and you might say, oh no, and it stifles you from being what God wants you to be. How often we have stopped short of saying something that God wanted us to say to someone. Or be a witness when God wanted us to be a witness because we were afraid of the way that person was looking at us, how they might determine us or judge us. Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. To Ezekiel, God said, don't be afraid of their words. He said, even if they heap scorpions upon you, Ezekiel, don't be afraid of them because they will know that a prophet was sent amongst you. I've called you, I've sent you. Don't be afraid of the people. I think one of Paul the Apostle's great secret is that being filled with the Spirit of God and living in the fear of the Lord, that is an awesome respect and reverence for God, he didn't really care what people thought about him. Now I'm sure that he had his times where he worried because even his godly friends, it seemed, had forsaken him. But by and large, he didn't care. He wrote to the Galatians and he said, Do you think I'm trying to persuade God or men? Or do I still seek to please man? If I still sought to please man, I could not be the servant of Christ. You see, it's important to recognize that the person you are sharing your faith with in the store, at the gas station, at school, in your family, that person who gives you a dirty look or says something rotten to you, you're not going to stand before that person on Judgment Day. You're not going to have to give an account of your life before that person, that professor, that friend, but to God. That person won't be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant, but God will. 
Do I please God or do I please men? Now, about this rod that he threw down in these verses. When he threw it on the ground, it became a monster. It became a, ser a serpent. A snake. He picked it up, it became a stick. There was nothing magical in the rod. It was all the power of God. By God's power, it became a serpent or it became a rod. Now, remember when he goes to Egypt later on. The magicians of Pharaoh... And were given their names in the New Testament, Jannes and Jambres. Also had the power to throw their rods down. And they turned into snakes as well. This was not by the power of God this time, it was by the power of the devil. Here we see Satan mimicking a work of God. Miraculous things can happen by God. Miraculous things can happen by the devil. That's why the gift of discernment is necessary and the Word of God is necessary and the principles of Scripture to distinguish. But what's beautiful about it is that when Pharaoh's magician's rods turned into serpents, Moses' rod, which became a serpent, gobbled theirs up. So they were without their walking sticks. It was either a rod or a monster. It was either controlled by God or by the enemy. But the rod itself was not good or bad. I bring this up because there's a lot of things in life that are neutral. They're neither good nor bad. It just depends who's using them. They're instruments. They're neutral. I often hear people say, money is the root of all evil. That's a misquote of scripture. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money is neutral. You can go use your money to buy drugs, and the enemy can use it to destroy you. You can use it for God's work as a resource for the Holy Spirit to use. It can become something great in God's hands. Music, in and of itself, there's nothing good or bad about it. It can be a tool for the devil or for God. When I first moved to Albuquerque, I got phone calls all the time. You are of the devil. Really? Why is that? You had that rock concert at Calvary Chapel. And that's devil music. Is it really? Why do you feel, oh, it's that beat that excites people. And the words, I said, well, have you listened to the words? The words of the songs that we play, though they have a beat to them, glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll give my testimony. One of the things that brought me to the Lord was that kind of music. It was a magnet. It was a hook. And the gospel was in it. And I was a young teenager in high school, and I listened to a band that came to my town. I thought, I can't believe it. Christians play good music. I can't, I've never thought of such a thing. I thought of God as a fuddy-duddy wearing wingtips. Now, for a high schooler, you can see how he'd think that way. There's nothing evil or good in the music. It just depends who's using it. Oh, but the hymns. I love the hymns. Some of the richest theological truths in all of Christendom is found in the hymns of the church. In fact, I kind of compare the hymns to modern songs, and you just can't do it. The people who wrote the hymns had such depth of theological insight and walked with God through such the good times and the bad times. It's just, you, can't, you, know, you just can't compare it to a, a modern-day song. And yet, some of those ancient hymns were considered anathema and of the devil when they were written. A mighty fortress is our God. Did you know that many of the inside the church thought that that was demonic? Because the tune that it was played to was a bar melody. So was Away in a Manger. It was a bar melody. And some of the hymn writers took common songs that were played at large in the bars and in the streets, and they put Christian words to them, and they become the hymns of the church. So it just sort of depends who's using it. You make it a rod or you make it a serpent, depending on whose hands you place it in God's or the enemy's. Back to verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant but I am slow of speech 
I am slow of tongue. And so the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? (laughs) Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. Literally, it's, Lord, I have a heavy mouth. I'm thick-tongued. One, another translation puts it this way. I have a speech impediment. Lord, I, I, you can't use me. I'm not a toastmaster. I failed high school speech class. Lord, send somebody who's eloquent, but I can't speak. What's interesting is if you read Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, Moses was a man mighty in words and mighty indeed. We also know that Moses was schooled in the temple of the sun. He was raised in Pharaoh's court. He had all of the uh, um, educational possibilities of Egypt at his disposal. But here he says, you know, I'm, I'm heavy of mouth. I'm not eloquent in speech. I have a speech impediment. What's amazing is if indeed this is the truth, and I believe it is, or at least Moses thinks he's not good enough to do it, is that God chose this guy who had a speech impediment to become a spokesman. Would you choose a guy who had a speech impediment to represent your company as the spokesman for the company? You know, we picture Moses, again, like Cecil B. DeMille. Charlton Heston, let my people go. But it says Moses wasn't eloquent. He had a speech impediment. It was probably more like, let my people go. He couldn't get it out. He wasn't smooth in speech. He was not a golden tongue orator as many picture him. God says, I want you to be my spokesman. I can't do it. Go for it. Why did he say that? Well, it's been a long time, 40 years since he's been in Egypt. Perhaps in Egypt he learned speech. He was able to converse with the great scholars of his day in the area where he grew up. But he'd been out in the wilderness 40 years, hardly a place to practice your speech. You don't see Moses out there giving a speech or a sermon to the sheep. He'd been out in Midian for a long period of time. He'd forgotten how to use it. And probably also he felt very intimidated. He thought, no, I failed one time. And I get choked up when I'm around that kind of authority. I'm afraid what might happen. Again, often our excuse is this. And this is so important, folks. We say, I lack the natural qualifications. Oh, I can see how God would use somebody who's gifted and talented. And, but God wouldn't use me. Maybe God wouldn't use you because you haven't taken him up at his word and tried it. Don't limit what the Holy Spirit can do through a simple life. God is not looking for ability, but availability. Oh, but God looks for the degrees, the PhDs, the people with great oratory. No, he doesn't. God will take you the way you are. He'll take rough timber. He'll work you into what he wants you to be. You see, if God was always looking for the people with the greatest talent and gifts, then if they were used mightily by God, only that select group of people with the talent, with the gifts, with all those big degrees and big brains... and we see a wonderful work of God with people like that, we would look at those people and go, oh, I get it. No wonder God uses them. We'll just look at them. They've got three PhDs. Of course a great work has been done. How smart and educated and how talented and gifted. No, God wants the glory. God uses meatheads. My life verse, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. I love it. God chose Moses. We often focus on our weaknesses, don't we? Instead of God's strength. God's ability. When we first started the church, when we first started the Bible study, we were thinking about starting a church. We were at the Lakes Apartments. (laughs) See a couple here tonight, a few people who were back then. There was a guy who had come from Costa Mesa, and he went to Denver, and then he came here. His name was Mark McAllister, a good friend. 
And he was helping us in the early stages of the ministry. And I would just observe his life, observe how he was with people, noticed how he would counsel people. And I went up to him, put my arm around him one day, and I said, you know, Mark, I think God has called you to pastor. And he laughed out loud. He goes, ha, ha, no way. I said, no, I think God has his hand on your life. He goes, Skip, you don't understand. I don't like being in front of people. Oh, Moses didn't either. I don't think I'm eloquent. Moses wasn't either. No, I'd rather sit in the back of the meetings and just make sure that the temperature's fine and the lights are fine. I just don't want to have a visible kind of a thing. I said, well, I just really sense God has called you. In fact, I'm not going to be here next week. I'd like you to take my Bible study. Oh, how could you do this to me? <laughs> so it's pretty easy. Just, I, I, I've heard some of the things you've said. I know your heart is right. Just go for it. Try it. I mean, you know, then there were 20, 30 people, 40 people. He did tremendous. God's hand was upon him as he just went for it. And as he became more comfortable in that, he said, you know, I never believed that God called me. But now I know that God has called me. And instead of looking at my weaknesses, I see that God can be strong through a person like me. And God has used him all over the world, actually, especially in China, to do ministry work for himself. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, again, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? That's interesting. God made blind people? Well... This is a tough verse to unravel, but it sure seems that God is taking some kind of responsibility for the way people are. If you look at it, ultimately, God is sovereign, which mean nothing, means nothing escapes God's control. Whether directly or indirectly, God allows things that happen to happen. Now, the reason we have a problem with that and admittedly so, I have a problem, is immediately it changes my whole concept of what I thought God was all about and puts my heart at odds with God. Wait a minute. God, you couldn't do this. It has to be the devil that does that. And yet there's no explanation. God doesn't go into great detail. Well, no, no, wait, 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 Moses. Let me just tell you what I mean by that. He just said, who makes man's mouth? The blind, the mute. Isn't it I, the Lord? If you can get past that hurdle, your faith will be unshakable. If your faith is only that God would want everybody to always be healthy, I think your faith will always be unstable. You know what Job said to his wife? He said, shall we accept only good from God and not evil? Do we have the right? Isn't God sovereign? Can't God be God and do whatever God wants? If you can get past the hurdle of the fact that God is sovereign and allows what he wants to happen, your faith will be even deeper and unshakable. Deeper than you could ever imagine. You'll be able to look in the midst of pain and suffering and say, God, like we said this morning, you're good. Though I don't understand it, I'm going to draw near to you. You're good. That's a basic premise of my life. Now, I've got to also say that the world today is not as God created it or as God intended it to be. There has been a rebellion. There is a curse upon the earth that has not been removed. The curse of the law has been removed. In Galatians it tells us that we're not under the curse of the law. The curse of creation we are all under. Proof, we all die. So far, that's been the case. Everybody I've ever known who grows old eventually dies. Eventually the curse will be lifted. But right now we're under a sin-cursed world. And what you see happening is not the intended purpose of God, though God is allowing the will of man to have its length, its fill. The rope is lengthened. He allows Satan to have some sort of freedom. Why so much? I don't quite understand. I'm not saying that Disease is a direct result of some sin, but it is the ultimate result of sin in general, the fall of man. Remember the man who was in the New Testament and the disciples said, well, was it this guy's sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be born this way? Jesus said, that has nothing to do with it. It's for the glory of God that this person's like this, and he healed him. 
Does God intervene in the midst of the curse? Does God heal people today? You betcha. I am the result of instantaneous miraculous healing. I had an acromioclavicular separation in my shoulder after a skateboard accident. It was in a sling. I couldn't move it. And one evening I was at my friend's house. And he was praying over things. And Jack just started praying for people. He said, oh yeah, by the way, Lord, just, you can touch Skip. And would you just heal him, please? And I'm just sitting over in the corner going, yeah, it's kind of a nice thing to say. You just pray about those things. I felt instantly, without even expecting it or having great faith. I just knew that I was healed. And I took the sling off and I had full range of motion in my arm. I've watched people be healed who were paralyzed. I've prayed for people and I've watched them before my eyes get healed. I've also prayed for people and watched them get worse and die. Great faith was exhibited in all of those circumstances. What made the difference? The sovereignty of God. We do not manipulate God's divine will. As much as you want to think you can do it, you can't. God is God. I don't understand all of his ways. I accept them. And if you do that, your faith will be unshakable. Lord, whatever you will. I also can't wait for that day when we'll be in glory. When there'll be no more wheelchairs. No more crutches. No more tears. No more convalescent homes. Out of sight. Until that day, a lot of compassion is needed for those who are sick. Instead of just a pat, you don't have enough faith. Oh, it's easy for anybody to say. It sounds like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar in the book of Job. Look at verse 13. But he said, oh, there's the word but again. It means he's got another excuse coming. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now this is very, very revealing. Four excuses, God answers them. This this fifth excuse reveals his, his heart. Up to this point, it sounds like, I can't do it, God. I just can't. I'd like to, but I can't. The real problem is, God, I won't. has nothing to do with ability, but the will of Moses. All of these were just fronts up to this point. Oh, Lord, look. You covered all my excuses. You answered all my questions. But just find somebody else. You got the wrong address. I don't want to do it. Send somebody else. The the anger of the Lord was kindled, so he raised up Aaron the Levite. Now, God was angry at this point. God had done everything he could to overcome the little problems that Moses had. He had much more patience than I would have with this guy. He demonstrated his power. He talked in a bush. Now the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses. Here's the real problem. Moses, you notice, in verse 13, addresses God as, Oh, my Lord. But that's where the problem is. God is not his Lord. He has not come into the relationship where Moses is a servant unto his Lord. Because, as you know, the word Lord means, You to boss. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, I will do. I will do it now. If that's what you want, fine. You're the Lord, after all. I'm a servant. A Lord-servant relationship means... That he is the sovereign master over my life. But that's where the problem is. He was his God, but not his Lord. He wasn't obeying him. Al was speaking this morning about Peter, who was at Joppa. And it was 12 noon, and he was in a trance. And he saw a sheet let down from heaven with all sort of four-footed beasts and insects that were... Uh, considered classified as unkosher for a Jew to eat. And he saw these things in, the tra- in a trance. And God said, Peter, get up. Kill them and eat them. 
And Peter said, not so, Lord. Peter, you can't say that. You can say, not so, buddy. Not so, friend. But you cannot say, not so, and Lord in the same sentence. They're mutually exclusive. If he's the Lord, and he tells you to do something, you go, yes, sir, Lord. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything like this, common or unclean. There's a problem in the Spanish language. I had four years of it. I don't remember much of it, but I do remember this problem. And it's with the word Señor. It means Mr. or it means Lord. Is that right? And so, when you want to talk about the Lord, you say, El Señor. The Lord. El Señor Jesús. Now, it sounds, in a literal translation, like you're saying, Mr. Jesus. Say, Mr. Jones, Mr. Firkenbinder, and Mr. Jesus. The words all sound the same. But in context, it's usually easy to figure out. Now, we have the same problem in English. We say Lord, but we don't mean it. We have the right words, but the meaning attached to the words is not often what they're intended to be. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? If I'm your Lord, you'll obey me. Oh, Lord, just send Aaron. Here I am, Lord, send Aaron. Now, once again, God is gracious. He allows Aaron to assist, but, you know, basically says, Moses, you are going, buddy. I am going to use you powerfully, whether you like it or not. I'm going to use you, and I'm going to bless you. Verse 15, now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people and he himself shall be as a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do these signs. And so Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men are dead who sought your life. Now this was not God's highest ideal for Moses. God wanted to use Moses as the spokesman. Forget the excuses. Just do what I say. Moses didn't want to do it. God says, Fine. Take Aaron, your brother, the Levite. I know that he can talk well. He'll be the spokesman. And so God allows Aaron to come alongside of Moses. But that wasn't God's highest. In fact, Aaron later on becomes a real pain, a stumbling block. He's the guy when Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments on the mountain that he lets the people talk him into making a golden calf. And he fashions this golden calf out of all their jewelry and he says, This is the God, O Israel, that led you out of Egypt and cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Now there's a truth here. God wants to raise you up to the highest possible level and then he'll do the best for you at the level that he raises you to. Oftentimes, we settle for second or third or fourth rung down the ladder. Oh Lord, I just can't do it. Now God will be persistent, but there comes a time where he, just like Moses, he'll say, it. You just settled for second best. I wanted the best for you. I wanted to use you as the spokesman, but you didn't believe me. Now Aaron is going to be that spokesman. Moses let his inadequacy overshadow God's adequacy. How about it? If you were just to say, God, okay, I'm going to receive this message. I'm going to take you up on this whole idea that you want to use somebody as simply as me. And I'm just going to this week avail myself to you. I'm going to be your spokesman, your mouth. I'm going to share with that fellow or that gal at work that I've been afraid of. I'm just going to see what happens. I'm going to ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, and I'm going to go for it. Let's just see what happens. Take you up at your word. I would love to hear the testimonies next week of the faithfulness of God. If you just said, take him up at his word. Instead of saying, I'm inadequate. Moses, verse 20, took his wife and his sons, set them on a donkey. First class, they're going. 
He returned to the land of Egypt and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Oh, Moses was clutching onto that rod because that was the assurance of God's provision. As long as I have this rod, things are going to happen. Now, in a sense, I think the word of God is like that to us. We should clutch the promises of God. Never go anywhere without the promises of God, the word of God. Hang on to them, clutch on to them. It's the assurance of God's provision in your life. And it was by that rod that Pharaoh was humiliated. It's by that rod that uh, the water turns to blood. It's by that rod that the Red Sea opens up as God uses it. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but, now he didn't listen to this, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now we list, read that and we go, wait, wait a minute. Why are you sending a person to a guy that you're going to harden his heart against? I mean, why would you send Moses to Pharaoh and only to harden Pharaoh's heart? I mean, what's the point of it? Well, the point of it is, well, we'll go on and we'll see, that God is going to harden his heart so that there is no mistaking that it's God who's delivering the children of Israel out of bondage. He wants it to be so dramatic that all of Israel and all of Egypt will know there's only one God, not 3,000 as the Egyptians had in those days. Oh, there were many gods. So I'm going to harden his heart. Now, there's two aspects to this hardening, and a lot of people get confused. Why would God harden somebody's heart? There is a judicial hardening, and there is a personal hardening hardening. There is something by the sovereignty of God where he hardens a heart. You could read Romans chapter 9 on your own tonight and see where God says that he can harden whomever he will and he can be merciful on whoever he will. It's part of God's sovereignty. God can be sovereign in grace and in judgment. But the idea is this, and by the way there's three Hebrew words in Exodus that speak of hardening. Basically the first five times that Pharaoh hardens his heart, he does it himself. He, by his own free will, says, No, I'm not going to let God do this. I'm not going to let the children of Israel have their way. It wasn't until the sixth time that we read, God made firm, literally. God made stiff or made firm the heart of Pharaoh. The idea is this. Pharaoh personally hardened his heart. He said, No. God finally came along and said, Fine. You want to be obstinate? I will firm up your choice. I will come alongside and I will strengthen and make firm the decision that you've made. You want to be obstinate? I respect your choice. I love that about God. He respects our choice. How would it be if God said, Now, you can choose whatever you want. Okay, I choose this. No, you can't choose that. No, you can have whatever you want. Now, I think God will make firm any decision a person makes. If you decide to soften your heart and say, Lord, whatever your will is, I choose to obey you, I think God will come along and make firm your choice, giving you the ability to carry that choice through. If you say, fine, I'm going to harden my heart. Okay, fine, I'll harden you in that position. Pharaoh said, I'm going to harden my heart. God said, fine, I'll harden it for you. I'll... You raise me five, I'll raise you ten. I'll make it so, I mean, so apparent. I'm going to bop you a good one on the head, Pharaoh. I'll make it so that you recognize who I am, that I'm the Lord. You want to be stubborn? Fine. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse let him go, to let him go, I will kill your son... Your firstborn. Now compare those two verses. Israel is called God's firstborn. In the ancient world, the firstborn was the most treasured of all children. It was the principal heir in the family. Now God says, Israel is my firstborn. It's a sign of intimacy. It's the language of intimacy. More than, these are just my people. This is my firstborn son. I care about this child, this group of people I call Israel. Even as in the New Testament, you are called a child of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. 
And beloved, we are the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That language of intimacy is talked about. We're children of God. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. And so he let him go. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Now again, this is one of those obscure passages. I've looked this up all the way from pure Jewish sources to Christian sources. And every commentator says, This is one of those tough things in the Bible. It's a tough, obscure passage. But um, remember, while Moses was in Midian, he had two sons. Apparently, he has failed to circumcise his children. You say, well, so what? Well, here's the so what. 400 and some odd years before this, God met with a guy named Abraham. And Abraham was with the Lord, and the Lord said, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants more than the stars in heaven. They're going to occupy a land. It says, Moses believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And so what did God do? He said, take your son and circumcise him as a sign of the covenant of the land that I'm going to give you. Right? And God said, this is a perpetual covenant. Whoever is not circumcised among your offspring, I will cut him off from his people. In other words, I mean business. This is the sign that you belong to me and that this land is going to be for your descendants. It's a sign of circumcision. Moses has been in Egypt half his life and in Midian half his his life. That was a promise that happened 400 years ago. He's probably thought, oh, oh, it's an old-fashioned promise. We don't do those things today. That was for way back then. Plus, not only has he been in Egypt half his life, Midian half his life, but his wife's a Midianite woman. You're not going to mutilate my son. No doubt, as I read the text, they probably had a discussion about it previously. Say, well, you know, honey, I'm supposed to lead the circumcised people um, out of bondage. It's a sign of a covenant for the land that God is going to give us, and I'm the deliverer. I think we should circumcise her. No, you're not going to touch my children. He probably thought, you know, don't want to hassle the woman. Just forget it. Go on. He didn't do anything about it. It says God sought to kill him. And some commentators say simply means he came down with a serious illness and would have died. But it says in verse 26, the Lord let him go. So you can see why, though. Moses was called to lead the children of Israel, but he hadn't completely obeyed the Lord yet in circumcision. There's a point here, by the way. God will deal, I believe, more harshly with leaders. What did James say? Don't be many teachers, knowing that you will receive the greater condemnation. God holds leaders into higher account. You know, I often hear um, people saying, if you speak somebody's name and you say, you know what, that person said something in that uh, message or it was written in that book and I think that that is scripturally false, what that person has said. Oh, don't say that. Don't judge. Don't touch God's anointed. Touching God's anointed in this context means don't kill the king. So I won't kill the king. But if somebody has a public forum, he is accountable publicly. And God holds leaders more accountable. And you know what? That goes for me too. Things that I say, I say them publicly. I ought to be scrutinized. You shouldn't just swallow everything that is said from any pulpit. I commend you to Acts chapter 17 verse 11. Where Paul said those in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. In that they received the word with all readiness of mind. But they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things be so. Match it up to the word of God. If it's not in the word of God, toss out what I say. If it's in the word of God and it ministers to your heart. If it lines up with scripture, fine. But God wouldn't let this one go. Moses let it slide. I have found that many Christian leaders, like Moses, 
go out to fix up other people's families when they really haven't obeyed in their own families. Here's Moses, going to lead the circumcised people, the sign of the covenant were circumcision, take them to a new land. He hadn't even obeyed at home. And so, in the ministry, those who are called to be pastor teachers, it says they should not only be above reproach, but they, their home life ought to be together. Their family life ought to be together. Otherwise, how can they lead the church of God? How can you fix other people's problems when it, the, the home is completely shattered? How could God be glorified? That's the idea in that. And I want to go a step further. This is one of the reasons the Scripture warns us not to marry unbelievers once we are Christians. Because it can get you into trouble. Marry somebody who is compatible with you spiritually, who has the same view toward God as you do spiritually. If you're called to the ministry, has the same calling to the ministry that you have. I have found that wives can greatly help men in serving the Lord, or they can greatly hinder men in serving the Lord. And it goes vice versa. Men can greatly help their wives as they serve the Lord or really hold them back. That's why there ought to be that compatibility before the Lord. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. Now, it's the idea of kissing him on both cheeks. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of all the people. So the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he looked upon their afflictions. Then they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Oh, they were so excited. Finally, after all of the cries, all of the years, all of the bitterness, God is going to move. What an exciting time when that messenger came. Moses and Aaron said, we're it. Simple as we are, we're going to be the deliverers, and God's going to deliver you out of your bondage. They worshiped. But don't get too excited. Read a few chapters ahead. They worship now. They'll complain later. In fact, they'll say, Moses, you turkey. This is paraphrased. Why didn't you just let us stay in Egypt? Did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Were there not enough graves? I do see a parallel. Um, new churches in a community attract what I have termed spiritual refugees. Let me explain what that is. Something new that's developed. And, and when I remember when we started, we attracted lots of spiritual refugees. And that's okay. I mean, I, like, I'm, I am a spiritual refugee. I don't fit in a lot of places. Few places would take me. But when you start a fellowship, there are all of those disgruntled people from other churches who just don't like their church. And there's something new. And so they'll come and go, oh, man, I love this place. Oh, what a breath of fresh air. Oh, I love it. And they're worshiping the Lord. And every time I hear that, I say, oh, praise the Lord, it's great to have you. It really is. And I want to do all that I can to minister to that person. But I always take it now with just a little grain of salt. Because I have found that those people sometimes, oftentimes, so excited at first, just give them six months or a year, they'll be the same ones who'll come up and complain about this or complain about that and then take my ball and go home and find another fellowship that's new in the area. And they'll be with that fellowship for a while, a year or two, and get up and move to another one. And they're just, you know, it's a circulation, just from one place to the next. No commitment. So I'm not flattered anymore. Somebody goes, oh, oh, your teaching is awesome. This is the place. Oh, I've looked for it. Hey, that's great. And we will try to minister as best we can. But I don't, let it, I don't go and go, huh, I'm pretty awesome. Now, God promised them a land. God promised to take them from Egypt through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. Which brings us, I think, to an interesting point. And I wanted to discuss it before we just breeze through the rest of Exodus in the coming weeks. 
whose land is the present-day land of Israel, or as some call it, Palestine. If you talk to the Palestinians who are occupied within the land of Israel, they will say, this is not Israel. They don't even say the word. They don't acknowledge that it belongs to Israel. They don't even acknowledge the existence of the state of Israel, even though it was by UN partition in 1948. They say, no, this is the land of Palestine. What does Palestine mean? It comes from an ancient word, Ur Philistia, land of the Philistines. That's why I don't call it Palestine, because there are no more Philistines that live there. They were the enemies of ancient Israel. They occupied the Gaza and part of the uh, seaboard of Israel. In 1948, the United Nations said, let's partition this land, this land of contention, into two states, an Arab state, Palestinian state, and a Jewish settlement. The Jews said, fine, we'll agree to what you draw up. It was previously under the Balfour Declaration of the British. The Palestinians said, we will not accept any partition that the United... We will not accept a Palestinian state within the borders. So it's interesting as I look just at the history from recent years of Israel and the Palestinians that there was a point where they absolutely refused any kind of settlement and now they're just you know, Arafat and the others are pushing for it. As soon as the United Nations officially declared the state of Israel, actually before that, uh, when the PLO was formed and other factions, it, it, it's a long history. I don't even remember. I've kept trying to keep up on it, but it's, it's, it's so detailed I can't. But the Palestinian Liberation Organization said, our ultimate goal is to push the Jews into the Mediterranean Sea, and we will not be um, satisfied until their total destruction has been accomplished. Well, as you know, things have changed over the years, and the big issue is, whose land is it? Does it belong to Israel? Does it belong to the Palestinians? Jews said, well, we've had it since 48. The Palestinians say, hey, we were here before you were. And they've got a point. But let's go back further in history. Way, way back. Here's the answer. Whose land is it? It's not the Palestinians. It's not the Israelis. In Leviticus 25, God said, the land is mine. It shall not be sold forever. The land is the Lord's. So before we stake claim, it's my land. No, it's God's land. Having said that, God did promise that that land would be given to Abraham and to his descendants. Way back in Genesis 17. He is the stars of heaven. So your descendants being, I've got a land for them. I'm going to deliver them. They'll be in bondage for a while. I'll take them to a new land. Great. Only problem, Abraham had how many sons? Eight altogether. His firstborn was Ishmael. Ishmael was a result of a relationship that he had with Hagar, the handmaiden of his wife Sarah, an Egyptian. And God promised that Ishmael would be a great man and a great nation and have a large portion of land and God would make him great, and tribes would come from him. God made many promises to Ishmael. A lot of Christians don't keep that in view. They go, oh, Ishmael was discarded. God promised him great things. The land of Seir, the land of Edom would be his. Abraham wanted Ishmael to be the son of promise. After Ishmael was born, God said, Abraham, that wasn't what I had in mind. I'm going to bless you with a son. Oh, no, Lord, let Ishmael live before you. Nope. Sarah's going to have a son, and the promise will be fulfilled not through Ishmael, though I'm going to bless Ishmael. I'm going to give the land to the descendants of Isaac, not Ishmael. Fine. Isaac had a couple sons. Esau and Jacob. Esau the firstborn. Jacob the second. There was a lot of family intrigue. Esau was not a spiritually minded man. Um, 
Actually, Esau was the one that went to Seir and Edom, not to Ishmael. But uh, Esau sold his birthright, you remember, to Jacob. Jacob was the younger, but the prophecy was is the older would serve the younger. So God narrowed his promises down from to Abraham, Isaac, and then to Jacob, not to Esau. So God said that he would bless Esau and that a land would be given to him. But in Genesis 28, it is said, May God give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants that you may possess the land which God gave to Abraham. A couple chapters later, Jacob is lying down out in the middle of the desert and he has a dream. Do you remember what the dream consisted of? A ladder going up into heaven, angels going up and down. He wakes up the next day and went, Whoa! God is in this place and I didn't know it. And God makes him a promise that through him and his descendants the land that God promised to Abraham and to Isaac would be promised to the descendants of Jacob, which became the twelve tribes, as we know them today, the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what happened is Israel disobeyed God. And You see, and I thought I was going to make it through chapter 5 tonight. Uh, Israel sinned. They were taken captive. And a lot of people see that and go, Aha! That's where the chain was broken. Because of the sin and the captivity in 586 and the three deportations into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar, it just shut down the promises of God and Israel has no stake or claim. Actually, if you go back further in Deuteronomy, God predicts that the children of Israel will fail, cease to believe, and God will send them into captivity. But even while in captivity, remember them and bring them back to keep his promise to Abraham, the promise of the land. An unconditional covenant. It's absolutely unconditional. It does not depend on the performance of the nation. And God did. God brought them back. And they rejoiced under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah as the things were being rebuilt. God's promise to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as occupying that land, God says, are as certain as the order and the ordinances of the universe. I want to close with this scripture. Would you turn with me to Jeremiah 31? I won't be long on this because I know time's up. Behold, verse 31, chapter 31. Easy to remember. Commit it to your memory. 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his neighbor saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, the sun, the moon, the stars, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. God is rhetorically saying, my promises will never end for these people. Why is it that evangelical Christians seem to be so pro-Israel? Well, I can't speak for everyone. I can speak for this one. I do not look at Israel through rose-colored glasses. They have blown it in many of their policies, in many of their activities. Uh, they are a people of reproach like any people. But I respect the covenant that God has made with these people. And I also know that the full restoration of Israel must include the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so I'm excited about that. And we're admonished in Psalm 22, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love thee. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. 
And so I do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I love the nation of Israel. I love to go over there and see the places where Jesus walked. Moreover, to see a place that will one day be restored. Where God will be in charge of it. The Messiah will rule from Mount Zion. And men's hearts won't be set at odds against each other. And so, as we are admonished to, we pray for them. Next week, we'll head into chapter 5. Um, chapter five, uh, chapter 6 is relatively quick. There's a genealogy which we will pass quickly through and a, uh, a reaffirmation of God's promise. Chapter 6 will take probably five minutes to get through. So, <laughs> tongue-in-cheek. I would lay bet next week that at least we'll cover two chapters, though. But we shouldn't bet, right? So we won't do it. I'm sure I'll get a letter about that. You said you'd bet, so let's pray. Lord, use us. We are called the body of Christ. The implications of that are staggering. That we are your hands. That the hands that we have can be instruments to reach out to people. That our mouths can be used by you to speak and to reach a generation that doesn't know you. That our legs, our feet, can be those very instruments that run to and fro through this earth, bringing good news. What an exciting prospect. Lord, as we learn, may we follow in the footsteps of Moses, but may we be more willing to be used than Moses. Acknowledging our weaknesses, but also acknowledging your adequacy. Lord, I pray that we would become the evangelists. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus 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 name, amen. In Jes